Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. First, I need to say, good job, bell choir. Holy mackerel. That was great. I know that you guys were nervous about that one. Well, at least one of you was nervous about that one that I know of. But wonderful. A very blessed Good Shepherd Sunday to all of you. As you heard uh, Miss Beth say in the children's time, today is Good Shepherd Sunday. Always on this fourth Sunday of the Easter season, the lectionary, those texts that are appointed for our readings each week, point us to this image of shepherd and sheep. And it could be argued, I suppose, that the whole sheep-shepherd thing is culturally irrelevant now as uh, let's face it, most, most folks will spend their life never saying a word to a sheep, right? Um, and yet that image lives on in the romantic imaginations of people of faith still. And this despite the fact that most folks who do yet have daily associations with sheep will be more than happy to tell you that romance has very little to do <laughs> with life on a sheep outfit, okay? But the image endures, and what we have today... If you paid close attention to those readings, are three very distinct um, voices regarding sheep and shepherds. Those readings all come from a differing perspective. We had that 23rd Psalm that's very familiar to us that we just read moments ago that is in the voice of one who is being shepherded, right? One who is being cared for. Then the gospel reading that I just read for you from John gives us the perspective of the one doing the shepherding, the caring. Right? Jesus as the shepherd who cares for the flock, gathering, safeguarding, leading them to abundant life. And then we have that reading from the second chapter of Acts, which was our first lesson today giving us a picture of life in the sheepfold where the community itself takes on the task of shepherding. And I think that's interesting. I'd like you to hear that again, piece of that first reading from the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter. It goes like this. As a result of hearing Peter's first proclamation of Jesus' resurrection, the new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They'd sell all their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So here's the picture, you see. Life in the sheepfold, where the community of faith actually now takes on the work of shepherding and becomes a source of awe to those who are not yet a part of them. I wonder when the last time was that you had awe come upon you. I want you to think about that for a moment. When is the last time that you were overcome? When the beauty, the magnificence, 
the sheer awesomeness of the thing reached down inside you and changed you. Not just the way you felt, but changed the way you saw the world, the way you see yourself. Because you know that's what awe does. It changes you. Not just the way you feel, but then it changes the way you behave, the way you act, the way you move in the world. This last week I was reading a fascinating piece in Psychology Today. Um, a handful of researchers have been studying the effects of awe on people, psychological effects and physiological effects. And these researchers propose that awe can be broken down into two components. Number one, vastness, vastness, bigness. And two, accommodation. We experience vastness, they say, when we perceive anything that is a lot bigger than ourselves or than what we were, are used to perceiving. For example, we experience vastness when we view a mountain up close. A lot of you have been there before, right? stand in a mountain shadow, you know, you're just overcome with this bigness, this hugeness of a thing. But the concept of vastness, they go on to say, need not apply only to physical objects. It can refer to people of great authority or talent or fame. Many who have met great public figures in person, for instance, report feeling awestruck, overcome with awe. So it would appear that the same thing could happen to folks who see a community of people a whole community, behaving in ways that seem to contradict what passes for normal society these days. Hmm? What if they saw a bunch of people loving and sharing and giving and forgiving, hmm. living together the way the book of Acts describes the early church? What if they saw a bunch of people living in the sheepfold this way? Hmm. Well, the article went on to say, in addition to vastness, awe also involves the need for accommodation. The adjustment of our cognitive structures in order to accommodate new experiences of wonder. Which is why awe is also linked often to feelings of confusion and disorientation and fear. In other words, if this vast thing that I'm in awe of, that I'm seeing for the first time, um, blows away my perceptions of the way the world works, how am I going to feel about that? Well, I might just be terrified by that. That can be very upsetting, right? That can be very disorienting, to say the least. And they say, sometimes we're not able to make sense of our confusing and frightening encounter with larger-than-life objects of awe. But other times we succeed in accommodating this new experience. And when we do, fear and confusion then might just give way to feelings of enlightenment. That's what they wrote. Now, to say that more plainly, I would say this. Once we get past that overwhelming sense of awe that this thing brings us, we may just be able to see ourselves as a part of it and then allow that thing to change us. You don't believe me? Ask any new parent about the first time that that new child was placed in their arms. Everything changes in that moment. In that moment of absolute awe, 
all of the disorientation, all of the fear, all the anxiety, all the pain of pregnancy and childbirth now gives way to a new reality. And that one becomes apparent. Everything in the past now is back there. Priorities change. Focus gets reoriented, right, to that child. You accommodate this awesome thing by letting it change you into a parent. Now, when have you been overcome with awe? When have you had your mind exploded by something awesome? I was listening to a radio interview a while back with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Do you know who he is? He's an astrophysicist, who, a very prolific author, and he likes to describe his job as one whose uh, career it is to blow people's minds. That's what he does for a living. Okay? And he was talking about the interconnectivity, the awesomeness of how interconnected all life is in our world. And he's talking about DNA, you know, that nucleic acid that is the building blocks of our life. And he says, you know, it's amazing the DNA in you, how similar it is to the DNA of every single living thing in the known universe that we know of, living thing. Now, there's small little changes in DNA, those small little changes that make up the shape of your face that determine the color of your hair, that determine the amount of melanin in your skin. Those changes in DNA are tiny. They're infinitesimal compared with the similarities of the DNA that is part of everything alive. After all, it's only carbon and water pretty much, right? And he was saying the differences in you that make you you as distinguishing you from a bird or even a blade of grass are absolutely tiny compared to the, the way your DNA matches up exactly with every DNA of every living thing. And that's how connected we are, he says, that we are so alike in living things. Awesome. And he went on to say, did you know that there are more molecules in a cup of water then there are cups of water in all the world's oceans. I'm going to say that again and wrap your mind around it. There's more molecules in a cup of water, one cup, than there are cups of water in all the world's oceans. And that means that the next cup of water you drink contains something like 8.66 times 10 to the 23rd power <laughs> number of molecules, okay? So about eight and a half septillion, all right? molecules in it. And because of dispersion, the next cup of water you drink, of course, will be dispersed out into the universe, out into the world. And all those little mo molecules, they're not destroyed. They stay water molecules. They go everywhere else. And that means the next cup of water you drink probably, statistically speaking, contains a water molecule that passed through Abraham Lincoln, that passed through your great-grandparents, that was drunk by King David, that's how interconnected we are. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that unbelievable? Take in a breath. Fill your lungs. Did you know there are more molecules in that breath of air you just took than there are breaths of air in the world's atmosphere? That many molecules. And because of dispersion, when you breathe it out and all those air molecules go everywhere else, guess what that means, statistically speaking? That you're breathing air a molecule or two or ten, or I don't know how many, that was breathed in 
by, I don't know, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> it was breathed in by Michelangelo. It was breathed in by Jesus himself. That's how connected we are. Awesome, mind-blown, incredible. And if that's how connected we are, how could we not be in awe of that? And if in awe of that, how could that not then affect the way that we live, the way that we see one another on this planet as races, as nations, as people? Hmm. How could it not affect the way we care for one another then? And the way we steward life on this planet, all of it. The reasons for awe and wonder are all around us. Poets know this. Scientists know it. Lovers know this, right? There's no shortage of wonders. If it's been a while since you were in awe of anything, the problem isn't a shortage of wonders. Maybe it's simply a problem of perception and awareness. We just miss them. This morning I got up at my usual time. About five o'clock, stumble into the shower, get dressed, drag myself into the kitchen, open up the blinds on our south-facing windows, look at the weather, go get my cup of coffee, and plunk myself on the couch and watch uh, Today in Agribusiness, <laughs> which is the only thing on TV at five o'clock in the morning, and so uh, I figured catch up on what's going on in the world of agriculture. A few minutes after I plunk myself on the couch with my coffee, um, our daughter Karen came up the stairs. Karen's home for a few days. And she, for the last half a year, has been living in the Twin Cities, away from us, living in Eden Prairie. And Eden Prairie is a nice, you know, southern suburb of the Twin Cities, but it's the city. And she came up the stairs, and, you know, we don't talk a lot in the morning. I said, good morning. She goes, uh, and walks by me. And she walked to the window, and she stood looking to the south for, I bet, two solid minutes. Just stood there, their back to me, looking out the window. And then I saw her reach in her pocket and take out her phone. Go like that. Off to the, off to the east, if you took time to look, you'd see Bear Butte rising in the sun, and come further west, and then there's Lookout Mountain, there's Spearfish Mountain, there's Terry Peak, still with some snow on the top, and then over here is Crow Peak in the west, and off beyond that, Wyoming, right? You can see all of it from our southern window. I don't know how many times I see that view, every morning, every day, you know? But she hasn't seen it in six months, so she comes to the window, and she's absolutely overcome by awe, has to take a picture, probably to send to her sister, who's waking up in Eden Prairie, <laughs> and to say, ha-ha, look where I am, you know, and look what I'm looking at. The shortage of wonders does not exist. They're all around. But so often we take them for granted. It was just a couple of months after that first Easter, right? And the disciples of Jesus, they're locked behind those closed doors at first. First, right? You see, the heart of God for the world, Jesus, 
It looked like he had been done away with, right? But the love of God for the world will not be so easily pushed aside, and so that love defeats death. It rises. And at first the disciples, in awe of this thing, are mystified. Then they're kind of disconcerted, and then they're terrified. And so they lock themselves in a room, right? Scared to the point of staying there behind those doors. The problem wasn't a shortage of wonders. The problem was one of perception. But once the risen Jesus came to them, and once God sent them a spirit of courage, they came out from behind those locked doors. They knew now that death would not have the last word, right? The courage of that drove them out of their hiding, and it changed everything for them to the point of telling others about this awesome reality of death's defeat. And that's where the second or that first lesson from the second chapter of Acts finds them this morning. They're telling other people. But I love what comes next in Luke's telling of that story. He says, awe came upon all of them. And by all of them, he's not referring so much to the people of the first Christian community as to those who were seeing them and seeing what this awesome thing has done to them. Hmm. They're starting to live like people who aren't afraid anymore. I find it incredible that when Luke says that, awe came upon everyone, for that they were doing all kinds of wonders, okay? And then Luke doesn't tell us what those wonders are. He doesn't name specific miracles or anything like that. Instead, he just tells us this. They were together, and they held all things in common. They sold all their possessions, and they gave the money. They distributed it to any who had need. In other words, they just started taking care of each other. That's pretty awesome, pretty wonderful. Huh? They worship together often because when you're overcome with awe, of course, you have to find somebody to thank, right? And they ate their food with glad and generous hearts because when you're overcome this way, how can you not be glad and how can you not then share, know that you have enough and start sharing it with those who don't? And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Because how can people resist wanting a share of whatever it is that's obviously overcome you with awe to the point of making you unafraid? People want a share of that. They want a piece of it. If I could ask for only one thing on our behalf from God, during this season in which we find ourselves now, I think it would be this, that we would have our souls and our eyes and our hearts opened up to the wonders that surround us, to know the wonder of the love that enfolds us, to live abundant lives in which we are regularly overcome with awe at the love that God has for this fragile, interconnected, beautiful world. This is life in the sheepfold. And if we dare, if we dare to live our faith fearlessly and joyfully and generously, the world just might be in awe of us too. Want a piece of it. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 
Hallelujah.